Hello, hello. In our excitement to get talking with our guest, we completely forgot to make two very important announcements about this season. First, this is our last episode of the semester. So we will be taking a little break, but we will be back in the new year with new content, some that is very exciting and we are getting organized and set up right now as we speak. And two, the first episode back in the new year will be a Q&A with Brendan and myself. This is Alyssa. Send us your questions. Ask us anything that you want about relationships, about graduate school, about getting through that shit job that you're just going to for a paycheck. You can send us an email at zorasdaughterspod at gmail.com with your questions, or you can send us a voice note either via email or through Instagram. Happy holidays and happy listening. Let's get into the episode. share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Brendan and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hi everyone, I'm Alyssa and I use she, her, hers pronouns. I have traded in the cicadas and crickets for (laughs) sirens again. So (laughs) today we're talking about featurism, texturism, Black hair politics, and we have a guest. We hinted at it in the last episode. It is, as some of you guessed correctly, Dr. Tina Lasisi, your favorite biological anthropologist. Ooh. Hey, hey. <laughs> we are just ecstatic, excited, just all the words to have her on the episode. Uh, we consider her one of our OG listeners. And she's actually one of our friends. So, (laughs) so happy to have you on the podcast today. Um, And we watched our platform and reach explode over the last couple of years. Like, I remember teeny Tina back in the day. (laughs) Tear, tear, tear. Yes, it's, it's a true honor and pleasure to have her join us. But before we get carried away, let's just say thank you to our supporters, new and OG creating these episodes would not be possible without you. So the best way to support us is by becoming a patron where you can access the ZD community, speak to us personally, and see exclusive videos and audio from our episodes. We sent out our book of the semester, which I hope our wonderful patrons, uh, novelists, and above will enjoy over the holidays. Head to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters to learn more. But with the holidays being around the corner, we know that the wallet might be looking a little thin, a little flat. <laughs> I know mine is. Look, I need that stipend. So where's my stipend at? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> when am I getting that first check? Um, other, <laughs> So other ways you can support us include leaving a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, following us on social media, and sharing our episodes with your friends, family, students, neighbors, 
side pieces, sugar guardians. Just just give everyone the gift of ZD. Please. Um, sugar guardians will especially appreciate it, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> speaking of the gift of ZD, right, there is merch available on our website. We have mugs, notebooks, t-shirts, stickers, and more. And you can also give the gift of a workshop curated by yours truly. We have done workshops for international companies, universities, and local organizations, and we can do one for you. Uh, we create custom interactive workshops and talks that address the needs of your group, and people love them. Like we have five stars all around. Um, so, if that's what, something you might be into for 2023 and beyond, right? Head to com to email us for details. Definitely. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Brendan, what's the word? You know, we are doing something extra special for y'all today, especially since we're about to head off to the holidays. Another gift. Um, We are offering two words of the day. Today, we're going to talk about featureism and texturism, which are the cousins of colorism. We've talked play cousins about, or real cousins? <laughs> play cousins, real cousins. I mean, are they cousin siblings? Mm. Mm. We talked about colorism in season one, episode nine, which is named Colorstruck. And colorism was coined by Alice Walker. And she defined it as, quote, prejudicial or preferential treatment of same race people based solely on their color. So featureism and texturism are related, but they address more than just color. Featureism, to build on Walker's definition, is a prejudicial or preferential treatment of people based on the proximity of their features to Eurocentric standards of beauty. And texturism is the preference for what's been called, quote, good hair, right? That hair that has a smoother or looser texture and the discrimination against people with kinkier hair within the same race. Skin complexion, hair texture, facial features, and body type all play a role in defining someone as beautiful, but they also contribute to the way we are racialized. The combination of these things is why Zendaya gets perceived as black, while Rashida Jones is perceived as white, despite both being biracial. But these are examples of biracial women. So what about those who are not and receive the question, are you mixed? What are you mixed with? Mm. This question, this very insidious question, implies that Black can only be beautiful when mixed with white features or those of other ethnic groups, which definitely speaks to some people's obsession with having mixed babies, but that we might have to save for another another episode when we can have a psychologist on. Because <laughs> uh, people need help, honey. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, featureism does not just affect Black people. So the double eyelid surgery that is common in Asia is a prime example of how Eurocentric beauty standards permeate societies around the world. When it comes to texturism, we often think about the hair typing system developed by celebrity hairstylist Andre Walker, where hair type is divided into distinct categories from 1A to 4C. One being straight, two being wavy, three being curly, and four being kinky or coily. However, hair typing was actually used in the early 20th century by Eugen Fischer, a Nazi German eugenicist. 
So the hair gauge, a 10 box that was filled with 30 samples of different hair and textures was used to judge the relative whiteness, right? According to your hair color and your texture of mixed race people in what is now Namibia. And it was also there where the Germans carried out a systematic genocide of three quarters of these people. So just an aside, right, when folks bring up the Holocaust and the atrocities that happened there, right, the technologies and the practices um, to exterminate Jewish and other people in Germany was actually perfected in what happened in Namibia. Um, So when people... We're going to have another talk another day about the anti-Semitism versus anti-Blackness talk that people like to have. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's just something to note there. So we also know that the pencil test, which was something that was used in apartheid South Africa, um, that was something that was used to determine whether or not someone could be categorized as white. And so these two kind of systems show how featurism and texturism can have deadly consequences. Yes. And these prejudices all emerge out of a fundamental anti-Blackness. And I think they have more powerful effects than we realize. In our colorism episode, I talked about what my friends and I call <laughs> loophole women. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go back to that conversation? I'm covering my face. Um, <laughs> but one that I didn't talk about were the the kinds of loophole women that's what we want to call them are the brown and darker skinned black women with thin noses wavy hair or other eurocentric features that get centered as beautiful Mm -hmm. and i think we we don't often acknowledge that i think if you call someone out on their preference for light-skinned women they'll say oh but i think kelly Rowland is prettier than beyonce even um you know that was something kevin samuels used to say a lot as well um he would be like Beyonce's Beyonce's an eight, Rihanna's a nine, and Kelly Rowland's a ten. Those that was how he would have his like very disgusting ranking system of attractiveness. Ooh, interesting. Hmm. Yes. So it's always Kelly Rowland and Tika Sumter. It's never Danielle Brooks and Viola Davis, right? Mm. So it speaks to how insidious featurism is that most people can't even recognize it. They think, oh well, that's a dark skinned person. So, you know, obviously I do like black black women but they always choose the ones with the most Eurocentric features. Mm. And I don't want anyone to get me wrong. There are ways to, there are, there are many ways to look and to be black, even when you're genetically 99.99999% African, right? But the question is about which of those combinations of features and, and hair textures get uplifted. So when people think of beautiful black women, it should include dark skinned, wide nose, dark eyed, full lipped, kinky haired women too. Absolutely. And one question to ask is, right, when we think about these things is how do we even know when it's featurism? And so ask yourself, right, if this characteristic was present on a non-black face or a non-black body, would it still be considered attractive? Right. So we can think about the Kardashian body, quote unquote, which we all know. Mm-hmm. Black trans women. Uh, my good sis Amaya Scott was the original OG IG baddie um, that the Kardashian body developed from. Right, the J Lo booty, and people trying to get Kylie Jenner's lips. That whole rug circus, um, right, is a prime <laughs> example of how black features are positively received on non-black people. 
as long, right, as it's not too much. And so I've been saying that now, you know, for a while now that the race war is coming, actually, and that more people are trying to reclaim their whiteness or proximity to whiteness because they want people to make sure they know where they stand, right? And because race is is a social construction that was developed as a quick kind of visual way to understand who's enslaved and who's not, right? If you got a black woman's body, how do they not know you just not, you know, uh, oh my gosh, I was about to say quadroon. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> how do they know that you're not just not someone who has African ancestry, right? So that you're passing, yeah. And that you're trying, yeah, that you're trying to pass. And so in any case, right, this is literally where futurism intersects with colorism and the Afro Afro the Afrocentric features criticized when they're on black women are praised when they're on white women. And so I think that uh, Darkest Hue on IG summed it up really well. Uh, one, colorists are almost always texturists and featurists, right? Two, texturists are almost always colorists and featurists. And three, featurists are almost always colorists and texturists, right? So if you had that Venn diagram, I would say a lot of niggas sitting right there in the middle um, doing all three. <laughs> um, the, the Venn diagram is a circle, bro. <laughs> the Venn diagram is a circle. <laughs> and as, as you said, right, these are about anti-blackness and desire to achieve whiteness or to be accepted into white society. So even within movements that we think are about our liberation, like the natural hair movement, which we'll talk about a little bit today, right, or even the locks community, which as a member of, mm-hmm, uh, we, we <laughs> see hierarchies develop where looser hair textures are deemed more desirable or beautiful. And people with locks are relaxing their edges, which is, and also combing out the end of their locks. So their locks are curly at the ends, um, which I think actually brings us nicely to our next section, which is what we're reading. So Alyssa, what are we reading today? Today, we're reading an essay entitled Don't Touch My Hair, Problematizing Representations of Black Women in Canada by Shaughnessy Brown. Dr. Brown is Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. She self-identifies as a Jamaican-Canadian woman of African descent, a Pan-African womanist, and is passionate about all things capital B Black. Heard you. She earned her PhD in humanities from York University in Toronto. She has conducted research on Canadian beauty standards and the politics of natural black hair. Her current research collaborates with artists in Toronto to delineate a specifically second generation understanding of black women's art practices. She is interested in how black Canadian women artists of Caribbean descent offer blueprints for living relationally and suggest methods for radical community care. Future projects will explore how sound can be used to re-articulate Black life in ways that directly refuse the anti-Black logics facilitating disproportionate rates of Black death worldwide. Mm. She also sings and plays piano and guitar. Her current playlist includes Chronics, Bob Marley, Coffee, Shensia, and Mustafa the Poet. I would also like to add that I was her frosh leader way back in the day. <laughs> That's first year orientation for the Americans. I don't know if you all call it Frosh Week, but 
That's how it is. That's what it was. At least I think I was her frosh leader. We were at the same college. She, she started after I did um, at the University of Toronto. And she was starting her PhD at York while I was finishing up my master's. So as soon as we said that we were going to talk about black hair, I thought her work would be perfect to read. Yeah, I am like, yes, because at first I was like, okay, two Canadians, I see the Canadian link up, um, but it's just, <laughs> it's more than that, right? It's And it's actually really beautiful. We call it frosh. I think we call it frosh. At Duke, at least we did. Okay. We were like P-frosh. Um, P-frosh. <laughs> P-frosh. I really, honestly, my brain just, whenever I try to go back to college, my brain says black hole. Um <laughs> <laughs> we're not going back to hell we're not going back to the home of the blue devils but i do remember like having a pea frosh so that's really cool okay um but back to this essay right so this essay was published in 2018 in africology the journal of pan-african studies and it was interesting to read the canadian perspective on this experience and the way that it intersects with the american experience because honey if you didn't know anti-blackness is mr worldwide Okay. Yeah, it's it's not Pitbull or whoever says that. <laughs> and it's not like this professor I know who tried who tried me on it, honey. Anti-blackness is around the world. Um, and so the essay opens with two epigraphs from Solange's song "Don't Touch My Hair" and a quote from playwright Trey Anthony's play "The Kink in My Hair." The latter of which says, "Quote: If you want to know about a woman, a black woman that is." Touch our hair, cause our hair carries our journey. Cause that's where we carry all our hopes, all our dreams, our hurt, our disappointments. They're all in our hair. But honestly, honey, that's exactly why we don't want y'all fingers in it. We don't want y'all touching it. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Exactly, our hair, our hair has power. That's why people be chopping it off. But anyway, <laughs> I, I just wanted to say again, going back to the wonderful Canadian connection, <laughs> I just want to say that I had the pleasure of seeing that play when I was 15 or 16. And it was just, it was incredibly mo moving. It's a series of monologues. Uh, the main character who's played by Trey Anthony, Novelette, she's a hairdresser in Eglinton West, which is the set, the kind of one of the centers of, of the Caribbean community in Toronto. Mm. And when she touches people's hair, she, she knows what's happening in their lives. So the monologues are, um, the monologues are basically just the telling of, of their experiences of what's going on. And I'm still to this day, I didn't even have to look this up, <laughs> the name of the name of the actress. I think she's also a, a, a dub poet and things like that. But to be young, she did this powerful monologue about surviving sexual abuse. She, she plays like this, either a young girl or someone who's who doesn't quite have like full m mental maturity. And it was just so moving. And I'm still... I'm still affected by it. Whenever I think about that play and that time in my life, it was truly beautiful. Mm. So yeah, it was a game changer, that play. In any case, <laughs> y'all having me reminiscent about the old days. Oh my oh. goodness. <laughs> we are reading so, Canadian stuff. I know. And <laughs> yes, that's, a, that's another reason that we wanted to read something that was like outside of the USian experience. But mm. 
In any case, this paper expands on Althea Prince's 2009 monograph, The Politics of Black Women's Hair, by centering the experiences of Black and mixed-race Canadian women and the personal intentions of their hair choices they make. While Prince argues that hair choices are connected to convenience and ease, Brown examines Canadian contributions to the natural hair movement and infamous cases of workplace hair discrimination in Canada to show that we use our hair or lack thereof, to claim space and exercise our right to be. Right. And agency and self-determination sit squarely in the center of this article. And Brown asks us to consider the agency of Black women when we assign political forms of expression to their hairstyles that they themselves might not even have, right? And so in this paper, she explores how the promotion and acceptance of Black women's identities through their hairstyle choices might promote resistance against colonial violence and create social and political alliances. And so she she situates the natural hair movement as a site of virtual home place that quote, recreates and rehumanizes black women while asserting and restoring their dignity, end quote. And so home places, which we have discussed on the podcast before, um, Bell Hooks has a very short uh, chapter about home place that is just really beautiful. And she describes home places as essential for Black people and Black women in particular, since our bodies and our knowledges are always already constructed as inappropriate and excess in the larger world. And so I'm not sure when Brown penned this article, um, but this is definitely not how the natural hair movement has evolved today. And so if you are plugged into natural hair YouTube, um, I used to be on it uh, when I had loose natural hair, you'll see that there has been a recent movement back to relaxers um, for a lot of popular natural hair folks. Um, And there's also been this general discourse around kind of the failure of the natural hair movement because of its texturism and featurism. And Brown does not explore this in the context of this paper because it was published in 2018, right? So, and she sets up actually the natural hair movement, um, which maybe then, right, was a place where black Canadian women uh, could affirm one another. But it's just really honestly fascinating to see how things have shifted over the last four years. And, And so quickly. So quickly, four years, that's fast. People <laughs> because, say, all right, we're yeah, done with I mean, this. If, if, <laughs> if she was finishing up her MA when I was starting, my guess is that her research was done around 2015, 2016. And I think that's when the focus groups were done as well. So yeah, things have shifted immensely in the natural hair movement. Definitely there's that this going back to relaxers, which is which is really funny. And like, there's a whole healthy, relaxed community. Mm, which just means long hair and relaxed, but yeah. 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 <laughs> which is, another, I mean, that's another thing, right? That's another mm-hmm. issue with the natural hair community in general. It was all about length, length, length. How are you retaining length? So in any case, Brown's claim that the natural hair movement and other hybrid spaces existing as resistance to white normative beauty standards is true. For me, I used to relax my hair. Uh, I think I started... When I was quite young, I remember I relaxed it when I was really young, when I was a kid. And then my mom was like, no, I'm not going to do this anymore because I was taking swimming lessons. And so I went natural. And then I think around grade seven or eight, I wanted straight hair again. 
back to relaxer did that up until university when good hair came out the documentary by mm. chris rock and i was like wow that's all the stuff that's being put on my scalp and in my body so i stopped relaxing started doing silk presses which of course has its own little politics within the natural hair movement and then once i moved to london i was like i moved to martinique couldn't get my silk presses moved to london wasn't getting my silk presses my hair was a i had basically one large lock i was just having one large freeform lock because i was just like i would wash my hair i probably didn't even detangle it i was just like so lazy <laughs> i would put it in a ponytail that i used that i would like tie up with a stocking um my toronto women know about using stockings to tie their hair back good times um (laughs) they just discovered that you can use stockings on tiktok now all the young folks discovered (laughs) i just saw some two white women or no it was a girl it was a woman and her daughter using the using leggings to curl their hair and i was like you know you didn't come up with that right like the way you put it on like a bonnet you really think anyways okay getting off topic so um so yes once i moved to london and i had this uh single freeform lock I was like I don't know what the hell I'm doing (laughs) so I just cut my hair off I had super short hair and I really only discovered quote-unquote the natural hair movement around the time that I realized people were penciling in their eyebrows this is a shock to me so it was around 2017 and I started growing and caring for my hair myself um you know and my grandma always told me that my hair was my crown it's it's your crown it's your beauty and i just really wanted to reject that because i'm an iconic i'm i'm an iconoclast so Mm -hmm. for me my hair now is expression and i want to ask you brennan what was behind your decision to get sister locks yeah um i would say that your iconoclastness i don't know i just made that word up uh it's very aquarian (laughs) iconoclasm iconoclasm I knew you were going to say it was very Aquarian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Decision behind getting my sister locked. So um, I was going to talk about this a little later, but I guess I could talk about my hair journey here. I got relaxers on and off since I was about like five years old. Um, But I got my first, but they were like the box relaxers just for me from Walmart. Um, and I got my first relaxer at a salon when I was like 10 and my father took me, um, he said that he wanted me to look like somebody loved me. Um, and, and that was, that was definitely something. Um, but I think also speaks to how like relaxers functioned in the South and particularly in South Carolina during Mm -hmm. that time. I didn't know anybody who had natural hair. I didn't know anyone who had natural hair unless um, unless they were um, multiracial or biracial. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, um, and so after that, like I got consistent relaxers until I went natural in college. And I went natural because of the natural hair movement. I started, I got onto YouTube. I was like, oh, there's people out here doing all these different things to their hair. And I didn't really know what my natural hair texture was when I grew it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I first went natural in 2013. And my aunt, actually, I transitioned, um, which 
Brown talks about a little bit in the article, but I grew out my hair for about a year. And then I asked my aunt to chop it off for me to do my big chop. And my mother did not speak to me when I got my, when I chopped my hair off. She wow. gave, me this, gave me the silent treatment. And then later when she, um, when she was ready to talk to me, she asked me if there's a series of questions, which gets to this kind of political reading of black hair that is talked about in the article. But um, she asked me if I was, uh, did I still believe in Jesus? Um, <laughs> and do I still eat meat? Will I eat pork? Am I going to convert to Islam? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, yeah, y'all have to remember, Brendan was in a cult. <laughs> uh, you know, and my mother also just has her own things going on um, mentally and emotionally. So, yeah, it was it was a very strange and shocking moment because for me, it was like, you know, I was just tired of having a burning scalp all the time and yeah. all this hair breakage. Um, and I really wanted to embrace something new. And so, yeah, I got my hair cut and I wore a little tiny afro until it grew out. Um, had your TWA. had my little TWA. It was in Spain with a TWA. It was very cute. Um, and then, yeah, I did the whole loose natural thing for the last what, seven, eight years or until 2020. And I decided to get locks because I was just tired of doing my own fucking hair. I was tired of <laughs> spending eight hours every weekend detangling and styling and drying and washing and deep Mm -hmm. conditioning and all of these things. And um, it just got harder for me to do my hair. Um, So I was just like, let me just get locks. And so now I have sister locks, best decision. I wish I would have gotten them earlier. Someone else is responsible for maintaining my hair now. (laughs) And all I have to do is, is go to sleep and wake up and bow. Here I am. So I don't know. There's I mean, the hair. <laughs> until I get tired of them, I'll probably do something. I'll get larger locks. It'll probably be my next move. And then okay. I think I want to have a bald phase, but I want that to be when I'm in my 40s or something. Like Got it. 40s, 50s. Okay. Bald, bald I daddy. Like I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I liked having a really short hair. I was looking back at some of my pictures and I was like, this is my definite... It's looking cute. very queer phase, like yeah, no, and see, and also yeah, the short hair definitely signals something. Which Brown was the this- fits too. Some of the fits, I was like, wow, I was really good and queer in those days. Uh, yo, TBT, TBT. <laughs> but the fact is, hair really highlights how Black women experience space and place globally, and in this paper in Canada, I think. I think that that is definitely demonstrated by the experiences that we had. Your dad said mm-hmm. want they want someone that they, they want you he wanted you to look like someone loved you. My grandma said that my hair was my crown, my beauty and and she wanted people to look at me a certain way um and for us to to be received in the world in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so I think with going back to Brown's essay Studying Black women's experiences with their hair is not just about understanding how anti-Blackness, white supremacy, ableism, and classism shape Black women's self-esteem, but it also helps us understand how these oppressive forces limit Black women's ability to find jobs. 
That was a major through line in the paper. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, each of the participants in the study had stories about how their hair choices impacted how and where they found work. Black skin and woolly hair has historically signaled someone's inferiority. Some of the focus study participants discussed how wearing their natural hair shaped people's perceptions of their intelligence and their political affiliations. Brown names the practices of gathering meaning from Black women's hair as reading. And she names the, quote, inability for people to understand how representations of Black women's hair are perceived and how these representations are experienced as misreading. And so we misread Black women's hair often when we assign political or other meanings to their hair that do not match the intent of the hair wearer. So in other words, right, sometimes Black women wear their hair in a certain style or in a certain way simply just because they want to. And it doesn't necessarily have any political meaning to them. Right. So relaxers may not mean that someone wants to be white or desires to be white, right? In the same way that locks may not mean that someone is especially radical. Um, Grand rising, sister girl. (laughs) Grand rising, yo, grand rising queen. (laughs) I'm going to start greeting people like that, ironically. (laughs) That's really what I want to do is just start trolling people in these end days. But anyway, um, (laughs) but the, the reality is, right, so even when it comes to our intentions as black women with our hair, right? Because blackness has been made a marker of proximity to death, right? Misreading of our lives, of ourselves, of our hair is actually inescapable. Um, And Brown actually claims in the article that black women's hair is trapped in a state of performance. So -hmm. our hair can actually never just be right. Our hair actually determines whether we are wearing our race right, which is like, wow. Yes, absolutely. Um, Right. Whether we exhibit an authentic or an appropriate kind of blackness. So Brown actually explores this through, through two black hairstyles that are seen as authentically black and politicized as such, which are afros and dreadlocks. And I prefer to call them locks because I heard someone say, you know, there's nothing dreadful about my hair. So I, I was like, okay, I, I call them locks. Um, <laughs> but historically, these styles have been seen as symbols of black self-redefinition and black nationalism. And locks have been associated with Rastafarianism and black pride. The black power movement cemented an image of the Afro as a symbol of deviance, and it was criminalized. And we talked about we talked about the Afro and Angela Davis in a previous episode. Um, And so that's something we'll add to the show notes because I didn't have it here (laughs) in my notes. But in Canada, um, Brown writes that the Afro is linked to a culture of rebellion during the 1960s and 70s. And so some of the women interviewed actually talked about how they did not want to wear an Afro to job interviews because they were afraid of being seen negatively. Okay, this this is another, this is a question I don't quite have an answer to, but I wonder if the, this now, this new, I guess, denial, resistance to the dread part of dreadlocks is because of its like decoupling from its cultural context. Mm. And I'd want to hear more, yeah, 
I'd want to hear more reasonings from people because I have noticed that people don't say dreadlocks the way that they used to. People say locks mostly. And maybe it's a USEN thing, but I know that dreadlocks wasn't something that was like pejorative or something like that. That's that's what Rasta Rastafari's in Jamaica call it as far as call themselves. Um they call themselves dreads, you know, that's, so I, I wonder if there's, if there's been like this disconnection, um, from its, from its historical and cultural context that people are now like making this semantic association that never, Mm. that's being like, that's being imposed on the word. Yeah. People are making this a, a semantic association that's being imposed on the word that doesn't have anything to do with its original cultural context, but more of a question for someone who's an expert, not quite me. Yeah, I I would say that I did not know that. I just literally heard some older black woman say, "There's nothing dreadful about my mm. hair," and I was like, "Okay, locks." I I'm not I'm not opposed to people saying locks, but I think that the the logic behind it might be a kind of it might be a misinterpretation mm. um, of where it comes from. But yeah, I mean, Bob Marley he had a talks about being a natty dread like <laughs> that's just that's just the word but maybe we can get dr brown to, to answer <laughs> answer our question <laughs> all right <laughs> brown also discusses the role of respectability politics here you know and maybe the dread has something to do with that too mm. dread respectability take it out locks mm, sister mm. locks that sounds very approachable um dreadlocks sounds like something that people should be scared of okay <laughs> mm. well i mean i will say sister locks definitely comes from a kind of respectable because the whole idea is that you have these small stylable quote-unquote locks that you could even flat iron or curl and mm -hmm. honestly if you didn't if you saw me on zoom and my hair wasn't like it wasn't obvious that my hair is locked it just looks like my hair is down um and so yeah. I definitely think sister locks stem from that kind of, and it was invented by like a professor or something like that. So definitely <laughs> some respectability politics there for sure. Hmm. All right. Well, there you go. Some <laughs> we, we've given people at least two different paths to take on to, uh, to build on Dr. Brown's work if they're so inclined. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So Brown also discusses the role of respectability politics in misreading Black women's hair. Hair is central to how Black women navigate society respectably. Brown states, quote, Black Canadian women engage with respectability politics that inherently promote the invisibility of Blackness, as shown through the styles they use to fit in at work. They attempt to contain their Blackness by muting the racialized markers attached to their hair as a way to make their race less visible, end quote. The unfortunate side to all of this is that Black women sit at the nexus of different oppressions that makes us simultaneously hyper-visible and invisible. In some ways, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves less Black, but straightening or relaxing our hair might be one way we attempt to do that. But let us be clear, Black women changing their hair for better opportunities in society is not a reflection of Black women's inferiority. It is entirely due to white supremacist and anti-Black beauty standards that require Black women to seek authorization from, from the dominant culture in order to achieve. And... Like in order to survive, honestly, hair is mm -hmm. what your hair looks like and what it does is literally a matter of survival. And I'll talk 
about it later, but there was like one story I read on Twitter that really made me think about that a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, right, it doesn't really matter how a black woman wears her hair. Um, What matters is how people misread her. And throughout the rest of the paper, Brown talks takes us through several case studies that illustrate how Black Canadian women experience discrimination due to wearing their natural hair and how the natural hair movement and other virtual home places provided support for them. And one of these places is on Instagram through the account Canadian Naturalistas, where Black women's selfies with their natural hair challenged oppressive systems that dictated what was, quote, beautiful and acceptable. And through social media, Black women can establish their own forms of recognition and challenge negative stereotypes about them. And this is what Brown stands ten toes down on in the paper. Um, And we know that this is true, right? But we have to hold this truth with the texturism and featurism that social media can also promote, right? Especially with the rise of Instagram and the rise of like selfies and pictures, right? Who's picture gets circulated as beautiful natural hair and whose doesn't right whose edges are are laid and whose are we asking for them to take a toothbrush or edge brush to right so the main takeaway though from this work is that hair is a fundamental aspect of black canadian women's subjectivity and it is deeply embedded in political discourse regardless of whether black women want it that way or not Mm. Our hair, like our bodies and other aspects of our existence, condition how we understand race. As we've stated before on the podcast, Black women are the blueprint. We literally define the world. That's why we still have these back and forths on social media about Black women's hair, like mm, every other week. Mm -hmm. Accepting our hair in all its forms would require a deconstruction of normative standards of beauty problematizing how we see black women's hair will help us to problematize other aspects of our existence and unsettle the world as it is so we can make the world that it needs to be period and so i guess the only thing left to really say is why isn't the world ready to let black hair be let it be let it be it don't gotta be it don't gotta be it could just be you know (laughs) And speaking of the world, I think it's a good time for us to move to our next section. What? What? What in the world? What in the world is going on? What's going on, y'all? What the fuck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) We are so excited about today's episode because as Columbia graduate students, We are not four fields trained. Uh, We are cultural anthropologists through and through. But today we are joined in the Zoom studio by Dr. Tina Lassisi, your friendly neighborhood biological anthropologist and your favorite source on the science of hair, skin, and human biological variation in general. Dr. Lassisi is a biological anthropologist with an interest in studying the evolution and genetics of human hair and skin. Her work focuses on developing rigorous methods to understand the landscape of biological variation and a critical lens to investigate how that overlaps with various social concepts. She aims to provide people with the knowledge and tools to understand how we can study human variation and how it matters in everything from cosmetics to technology and medicine. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Southern California in the Department of Quantitative and Computational Biology. 
and is gearing up to open her lab that's right her lab in fall 2023 when she officially starts as an assistant professor of anthropology at the university of michigan welcome to the zoom studio dr lasisi i made it y'all i made it this this is the end point this is what i've been working towards i'm on zora's daughters i I can quit i can retire i got tenure (laughs) i wish oh my gosh what honestly we we say it all the time but yes we are absolutely thrilled that you are finally here Mm -hmm. i feel like your work in academia and beyond epitomizes what professors what academics should be what they should strive for getting their work out outside of the ivory tower your research is rigorous it's critical and yet you make it accessible to those who can benefit from that knowledge you're in journals and you're on npr so i (laughs) definitely want to know and i think others do too how did you create such a dynamic academic career for yourself How did I do it? Well, like most things in my life, I stumbled into it uh, by doing a lot of things that seemed entertaining at the moment and going against other people's advice. Um, so true Pisces, true look. Pisces, like. Yeah. <laughs> but y'all also certainly got pushback um, in grad school for doing, you know public outreach communication because it's something that's not considered to be currency for us as academics. And so I remember when I first started out, I had uh, a Twitter and a little blog where I talk about my research and, um, you know, I had uh, my advisor and other faculty be like, you know, you can wait until you're whatever, a professor tenured, and then you can write a book and then go on tour, whatever it is that they think happens. And then that is the correct <laughs> sequence of events. Mm. But that doesn't take into commun- con- that doesn't take into consideration that we have gained all these new platforms and tools um, that offer different modes of communication than what is traditionally considered uh, to be valuable public outreach by academics. And so I just started talking about it. And a lot of that has to do with uh, when I was an undergrad, um, I did my undergrad at the University of Cambridge in England, and I was trying to get black people in my uh, participant pool. So I wanted to study hair. And that meant that I had to leave Cambridge because it's not a very colorful town. So I went to (laughs) London and I started working with Afro-Caribbean student groups um, to tell them about my research. Now, you can't just walk up to black people and take their hair for science. Surprise, you gotta explain what's going on. And you gotta answer a lot of what kind of juju is this? Are you gonna clone me? And that means you have to like establish trust, which you both as cultural anthropologists are of course so aware of. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. more fundamental than establishing that relationship first and explain like, you know, why are, why are you here? What are you trying to do? Um, and so I was, trained by myself to um bake that into my research from day one to explain Mm -hmm. what it was that i was doing in a way that was accessible why it mattered to us right like and not just why does it matter to whoever you're reporting to why does it matter to your institution to your whatever colonial body that is sponsoring you no why does it matter to us that i am able to do this research like how is that going to move us forward how is that answering questions for us and so that already got me on this uh, track of 
you know, being on social media, explaining to people what I'm doing, demonstrating what it looks like, showing that I'm not going like, you know, mess up your hair. <laughs> I am not going to shave you bald. I'm just going to take a couple of strands. Um, and so a lot of that continued through grad school and it actually opened the door for me to do academic talks. So I remember mm. the first time I was invited by a friend in Cambridge to go do a talk there. And then I was invited to um, uh, another talk in Pittsburgh and it just like went on and I was doing like this little basically speaking tours um, in different like anthropology departments. And that became incredibly helpful for my academic career. So all of these things that I was being discouraged to do by academics ended up helping my academic career. All of this public outreach that I did, a lot of the people who consume that are people in our field because mm -hmm. LOL, our field, like you touched on that when you said, you know, four <laughs> fields, who, 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 who seen a fourth field, this alleged linguistic anthropology. I, I met my first linguistic anthropologist recently at the University we, of Michigan. We, we, okay, we, we read, we read a linguistic anthropologist. Okay. We proud, yeah. proudly say that. that we yes. That. <laughs> One of the four fields that we know, even within biological anthropology, the breadth of things that are covered, methods that are used, you don't know, you don't understand everyone like i don't understand what primatologists are doing when i started out i didn't understand what geneticists were doing there's people who do fossil work and so you have to make your work understandable to your colleagues that's one of the nice things about you know the way that anthropology is set up and even though it fails in a lot of places mm -hmm. you know the thought is nice and when it works it's great so yeah um that's pretty much it and then when i uh started doing my first postdoc quotation marks because long story, but my first postdoc at Penn State, it was sponsored by the Howard Hughes, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And it was specifically to create educational content. And that's what got me on TikTok. Now, once I was on okay. TikTok, things really took off. And then that was, yeah, found me. And now I have a, a PBS, PBS Digital Studio show. PBS. Yeah. PBS. This is, she, I was it. like, okay, I was like, I have to make sure that we drop this in there. Because <laughs> I didn't put it in the bio. There, there's so much to put in the bio that I was like, this can't, I have to, I have to take some stuff out and we'll talk about it later. But we, our girls on PBS got her own series and PR, like doing all of this public outreach stuff, which is so, so cool. Um, and your TikTok was, your TikToks were just hilarious. Like you were, <laughs> you were crushing TikTok. You had your whole vibe on there. You just, Dar you're answering people's questions like about Darwin and about about our hair and about all of these you know debunking all of these myths and stuff and and people people were loving it yeah loving I mean it's so much it. fun <laughs> it's so much it's it's fun it's a lot of work um I mean I, I mean I'm preaching to the choir here y'all know it's like it's fun it's a lot of work and I think it's severely undervalued for the good that it does. Mm -hmm. We can't assume that whoever we're forcing to take our classes as, you know, you know, gen ed requirements is is going to change the world. Like, you know, we need to be more vocal and public about the the not only the work that we do, but the lens through which we see the world, which is what I love so much about this podcast. Like that is something you explicitly do. You help people see the world in another way. And I feel like in you know, lowercase anthropology, as Brendan would say, that is the, it's value. That is what you can do with it. And 
that is what you know we're trying to do and give to people because at the end of the day most people aren't going to be anthropologists and that's fine but a lot of people are going to be having influence on the world in a way that an absence of an anthropological perspective can be incredibly dangerous and we're talking here about like ai i especially started getting into ai facial recognition recently anything forensic (laughs) um and (laughs) like you know medicine anything pick pick whatever like it People will benefit from understanding human variation, both in terms of culture and biology. And there's just like a lot of underestimation going on where people, people think like, oh, I mean, I know humans. Like, what, what do I need to ask? I'm a human. For? I'm a human. I myself am a human. <laughs> yeah. So we are going to ask you some questions from our Instagram followers. Like before we get to it, though, you all. This is how we know we talking to a black community. Okay, we say, <laughs> what questions do y'all niggas have about hair? <laughs> and y'all said, here we go. Here's a hundred questions. So we want to be clear. Um, Tina is not a cosmetologist. Neither are we. Uh, some of your questions can only be addressed by someone who studies styling hair. And per this episode, we know how important that is for black women and other black folks to know. Um, well, we will not be able to answer those questions, but we do have a few questions that we're just going to ask Tina real quick, um, to answer so that y'all can get some, can calm some of your anxieties about it. So the first (laughs) one is what exactly is heat trained hair? Woo. Okay. Now heat trained hair is basically, uh, damaged hair is what it is. So people will engage in uh, whatever it is, whether it's blow drying or straightening their hair with a flat, uh, flat iron to make their curl pattern looser. Mm -hmm. And I think what's especially toxic is calling it heat training instead of what it really is, which is the controlled damage of your hair because you don't like your hair texture. So that's that's really all I have to say on that front. I would say be aware that you are damaging your hair no matter how pretty the label is. Mm -hmm. There you go. All right, next question. Porosity explained. discuss Um, loving this essay prompt Uh, so your hair fiber um, can be thought of as having three possible layers the outer layer is the cuticle and then you have the cortex that's the main part and sometimes you have a hollow part in the middle that's called the medulla now the outer part the cuticle is imagine like the tiles on a roof and the more open they are the more porous your hair is, the more closed and tight they are, the less porous it is, like literally the less can go through the cuticle to the cortex. So um, there's things that you can do to make your hair more porous, like in general, heat will open up the cuticles. Um, Water, um, I think uh, more basic substances can open up the cuticles. And then cold will close them up again so that is porosity in general it's not different levels of like actual holes in your hair but it's like how open or closed your cuticles are and if they're damaged you can also be missing cuticles and your hair can be very porous because of that and what what difference does it make knowing your hair porosity sorry we're not supposed to do follow-ups but i think people might want to know that's a completely fair question so um the difference that it makes is how quickly your hair gets wet so 
when I didn't do anything with my hair, like didn't straighten it, um, it would take forever to get my hair wet. Like I will, and when I had a lot of hair, like I would stand under the shower and it'd be like, okay, is it wet yet? It's not wet. I have to stay under the water for a minute. And then on the flip side, when I go out, how long does it take to dry my hair? When I had a full head of hair, it would take sometimes a whole day. And I, and I should still wouldn't be dry. It's really annoying. Mm-hmm. So that is very low porosity. Like those cuticles are holding on to whatever. Nothing's coming in or out. Um, and if you have especially very damaged hair, although there's natural di- variation, it'll be very quick to get wet and very quick to dry. Got it. Also, just want to add, wanted to clarify or specify that when Tina said, Dr. Lassisi said basic substances, she was talking about the acid neutral base basic, like baking soda would be a base or basic substance, not something like Starbucks pumpkin spice lattes. Okay. <laughs> Yo, the pumpkin spice drinkers are hurt. Yeah, I have... I have low porosity hair and it takes a very long time for my hair to get wet. It takes a very mm-hmm. long time for it to dry. Um, so the struggle. Less wash struggle. day is a struggle. It's really like wash week. It's what, yeah, that's why it took me so long to wash my hair because I'm like, now I got to figure out either I'm sitting under the hair dryer and possibly damage my hair or am I going to let it air dry and not be able to leave and go anywhere. Um but yeah, so the next question is, what is the relationship between curl patterns and geography? And how did our hair evolve to be so curly? The second question I know from watching your dissertation defense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you for asking that question. That question is literally my entire dissertation, aka the last decade of my life. Um, so <laughs> when we talk about human variation in geography, actually what's really important to understand is that we use geography as a proxy. What matters in biology and human variation mostly is how closely related we are to each other. And so people who live closer to each other tend to be more closely related, but there isn't necessarily a direct link with the environment. And when we're talking about natural selection, so the process through which um, people's traits can change because some trait gives you an advantage in a particular kind of environment. That's something that happens over many generations, like hundreds, sometimes thousands of generations. Uh, In general, if I were to give you a brief tour of the world in terms of hair, um, across Africa, you have different levels of tightly coiled hair. So different levels of tight to loose curls all over the continent and you leave the continent you go to melanesia so um papua new guinea solomon islands kind of towards australia the indigenous people there have also very tightly coiled hair to slightly looser curls and waves and you go to um east asia the americas you have a lot of thick straight hair and then uh if you go towards Western Asia, South Asia, and Europe, you have uh, a range from very thin hair to thick hair, can be curly, wavy, and like kind of looser curl patterns. So that's like your little tour of the world. And why we think this distribution exists is because when humans first evolved, became bipedal, they lost their body hair, but it was really beneficial to have scalp hair. So if you are standing in the sun, the thing that is getting 
beat down by the sun the most is your head. That is the closest thing uh, to the sun. So having it covered is very handy because your head is not protected by anything. If you've ever had like a head wound, you know that stuff bleeds and is because your head is really vascularized. And that means it's also really easy for it to overheat and for your brain to overheat. So imagine if we had something to cover it naturally, like a head of hair, that's where it comes in. And curly hair especially, and as I found out through experiments that I did in my PhD, is this incredible structure that is able to minimize how much heat gets through uh, by radiation from the top of your head to your scalp while maximizing how much heat you can lose. And the reason I'm like waving my hands and it's amazing is because <laughs> it's usually a trade-off. So you have other, a lot of other mammals in hot environments, they have fur, because it minimizes how much heat they, they gain so they don't overheat, but it also traps heat. And that's because that's what straight hair does. But if you have tightly coiled hair, it forms this incredible voluminous structure with all these intricate air pockets that means like you're not overheating. There's a lot of misnomers out there. Like people will call black hair woolly and they'll be like, oh, aren't you hot? I've had that when I grew up in Europe. <laughs> be like, aren't you hot with all that hair? And I'm like, no, <laughs> because <laughs> That's just not how that hair works. It's nothing like wool. Um, but yeah, that's basically the cliff notes. I think I answered everything there, right? Yes. Yeah. How did our hair evolve to be so curly? <clears throat> how? Well, we don't know exactly. So what I've done so far is test a hypothesis that says, I think this is the function of hair. What we would have to do next <clears throat> is have more elaborate hypotheses that say where in your life or where in human ancient humans lives would this have been making a difference at the end of the day evolution is about who has more children so when it comes to skin color we know that uh, selective pressure for having um less melanin is the ability to produce vitamin d so that's one thing that we photosynthesize which i think is pretty cool but the thing about melanin is because it's so protective it limits the amount of that radiation that gets through which also is the amount of radiation that can create vitamin D. And so there's all of these physical health issues that you can have with vitamin D deficiencies where you can think like, okay, it makes sense that somebody might be chronically fatigued, chronically ill, and then over the span of their life would have fewer children than somebody who was marginally more able to produce vitamin D. Now on the flip side with folate, it's the same thing. People who are pregnant take folate. It's really important for a healthy pregnancy for that baby to survive. And so we can immediately say, okay, that makes sense. So the more protected you are, the more healthy children you would have had. We can't do the same with hair yet. Like we don't know where mm. exactly it would have been making a difference. But as we're learning more, we're gonna be able to answer that question. We're also gonna be able to answer questions about exactly when in time and how many times natural selection was affecting it. And in order to do that, we really need to know more about the genetics of hair because hair doesn't fossilize. So unlike, you know, any skeletal traits, the only way we can reconstruct that history is if we can reconstruct uh, this family tree, basically, of how all these different genes uh, evolved and dispersed. Mm, that's so interesting. One of my, one of my, this, this reminded me of one of my favorite of your TikToks, which was someone asking if our hair is genetic and comes from evolution and, and natural selection, why the hell did I evolve to have booty hole hair? <laughs> I'm screaming. Yo, that question. And I, that was the best. And you were like, it's a hitchhiker. And I was like, oh, so this is a trait that has just like 
stuck onto other things. It's related to something else. It has nothing to do. Yep. With yep. that. So <laughs> booty hole hair be like why. that. <laughs> what evolutionary purpose booty hole hair has? Um, <laughs> it doesn't have one. <laughs> okay. So next question: Why did my hair get straighter after children? That is a great question. So I have historically done most of my research on things that are related to race and ancestry, which is a particular dimension of human variation. Now, another dimension that's really fascinating is sex. So sex, you can see as another dimension of human variation. And I think it's so exciting because sex is what you can see over the course of someone's lifetime. So we go through multiple puberties, actually. We go through puberty in utero, I recently learned. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's the regular puberty that we know about, but throughout our lives, we have this endocrinological, uh, no endocrinological, endocrine, endocrine system that um, communicates with all of these different structures in our body and says, start making this, make more of that, make less of that. And whatever combination of different hormones and hormone receptors and structures you have can produce that many different traits. And so we know that hormones affect hair because what happens when you go through classical puberty, you start getting what we call secondary sex characteristics. So pubic hair, axillary uh, hair? Actually, I've never said that word out loud. <laughs> Armpit hair, um, <laughs> other types of body hair. Some people get facial hair. Um, and when we say you get these hairs, you are not suddenly growing hair where there was none. You are transforming what were tiny uh, velous hairs, transparent hairs into these larger terminal hairs. And if you look at beards, especially, they're such a different texture from mm -hmm. a lot of other hair. That also mm -hmm. is like this fascinating hint that we know that hormones and hormone receptors can affect hair texture. And so what a lot of people have said is that um, you know, the hair has changed through puberty or uh, after pregnancy. And pregnancy is another moment where, you know, hormones are doing different things throughout your body and different things can change, including your hair. So hair color, I've heard hair texture has changed. Um, and I'm trying to think uh, what else I've heard, chemotherapy. Um, mm -hmm. And these are things where we can suspect that the effect is hormonal. And because your hair follicles are constantly cycling, um, through these different growth stages, they, they can change throughout your life multiple times. Like people don't realize like your hair follicle is this mini organ that goes through so many cycles of life and death. Like it's constantly changing. And that means that, you know, you could be a whole new person every whatever, seven years when it comes to your scalp. Um, and every month when it comes to your eyelashes and eyebrows. <laughs> wow. I, you know, I wish my eyebrows would come back. <laughs> Jamaican black castor oil. Because um, I've had a little too many times at the threader salon and they took Look, a little too many hairs out. Jamaican so. black <laughs> castor oil. <laughs> I can't support that statement. I can't <laughs> deny that statement, but whatever helps your hair follicles, that's really that's really what you need to do because once they're damaged, it's game over until 
Okay. Until I figure out what <laughs> genes are involved with hair growth, because then we can start gene editing things. And once we can start gene editing things, we can like make little topical creams that are going to stimulate hair growth in places or stop hair growth and in other places. That's be, the future. You'll be a multi-billionaire. And you'll be if you if I you can solve male pattern baldness job. or something. If I can not only solve male pattern baldness, but get men to be able to grow beards when they want, I will be the richest person that has ever been in this galaxy. Okay, like that's that's it. Game over. No one will ever <laughs> touch me again. Yo, and then world leaders put, will bow at my feet. Right. Okay, and you could put something in the cream to make them better. Okay, <laughs> I mean, if we're gonna be gene editing, <laughs> help some sisters out. Okay, if only they were genetic, bruh. <laughs> men. Derogatory. Sorry. <laughs> So what are some myths about black hair that need to be debunked? Like, for example, is hair typing, whether you have 3A or 4C hair, like, is that actually something that's useful? That is a great question. Also, I need to stop answering every question with that is a great question because that is like an annoying academic thing to do. Oh my God, no, what a you're great question. You're so enthusiastic about your work and we love it. We love it. <laughs> I, I'm enthusiastic about all y'all, uh, y'all's questions as well. Now, when it comes to hair typing, to me, that's fascinating because that's the intersection between uh, perception and what people subjectively consider important salient and biological variation. So before the hair typing system that we're uh, familiar with, um, you know, 3B, 4C, all that, um, really you have a lot of verbal descriptions in English and in other languages as well, where you categorically describe hair as straight, wavy, curly, um, in a way that is very Eurocentric. And I say that as a side note, if there's any cultural anthropologists listening to this who want to study hair and the biology of hair, um, I am looking for cultural anthropologists who can help me look at how we talk about hair in other languages. Because surely other people thought about hair before English and French people decided to categorize them in a particular way. Um, but um, what Black women have done is they've taken, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but Oprah Winfrey's hairstylist who came up with Andre, Andre Walker, Walker, there we go. Mm -hmm. The Andre Walker system took it, ran with it, evolved it, like made it more sophisticated. And this happened alongside the growth of the natural hair movement. Now I was, like passively involved with that like you know when i was 16 like growing growing up i stopped straightening my hair and it was this incredibly empowering tool for black women to have language to describe the variation in our hair because we have very different hair from each other yet growing up in a lot of white places having uh, a lot of products that are created for white people or at the very least by white people that kind of group us together didn't address the needs that we had mm -hmm. and so what black women then do is they become the scientists in ways that were not rewarded that were not um paid and and, and it really irritates me because so much of the stuff that i read in scientific journals from like the early 2000s about hair is like uh, barely thought out 
And, and then you have these women who wrote these blogs, who had these YouTube videos, who really did studies, okay? But just not in a setting that was considered to be academic or scientific um, and developed this language. Now, the issue that we find with this hair typing is, again, it is subjective. Even if we have the language for this, it ends up being this discussion of, well, who is the ultimate arbiter of like whether you're a 4B or a 4C? And what's interesting also is I see this um, drift occurring where black women start something and then that something becomes diluted both within black communities by um, mixed light skinned, loose curled black women and then sometimes non-black women coming in and then what was initially for black women by black women becomes not no longer recognizable and so what happens okay we try to find new language i actually recently found this instagram called 4c only and Mm -hmm. to me that clearly says it's a clear attempt at black women with tightly coiled hair again like this clumsy language that we have to describe it being like okay no not you with the like 3a loose curls that can you know know, whatever tie it up curly girl right your waves which Mm -hmm. bro and also like you know how it is like people who say like oh i i like have a fro kind of like when i wake up you don't but you don't though but you don't the way the way that i have seen white women talking about how it's wash day and they are they're reclaiming their curly hair and that they had curly hair because they've been straightening their hair their whole lives and all this stuff and i'm just like how bro and i look and i'm already, like what is like, this you're already appropriating, this? <laughs> you're already appropriating like the features why are how are you appropriating the struggle Oh, I mean, oh. Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Dolenzal really, really shows how she opened the doors and the windows. Oh. Actually, I'm let the cameras in on this one. Oh, um, my God. So I, that that part doesn't really surprise me. The The surprising thing or not necessarily surprising, but what has been interesting is observing that mm-hmm. drift that you talked about, Tina, um, mm-hmm. with lighter skinned mixed race black women who were all of a sudden like, oh yeah, you know, I have um, I have like type four hair, I have tightly coiled mm. hair, and then you have then you have the resurgence of four C only, like yeah, exactly. like, Well, if you have four C hair, then I have four four Z hair, exactly. Like, I'm not exactly not the same thing. You cannot continue to, and then yeah, it's like this remapping of desirability. Where it's like, damn, even the spaces that were created for those of us who don't fit mainstream um, beauty standards, right, is being taken over by women who would already be con- be considered beautiful no matter the fuck what, right? So it's, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because what <sighs> Fenty Beauty has done for skin color, which ironically, this is a whole separate uh, story, but we have ways of objectively measuring skin color, yet even though... Sephora says that they have this tool where they can measure your skin color. It's never worked at a single Sephora where I've been like, I've always asked for it. They probably think I'm like some kind of insider. And they're like, nah, don't let Tina LaCici see our tool because she's going to 
I don't know why they think I'm going to do girl. it anyway. I, I remember the group chat, you being like, guys, um, is this the right color for me? I'm trying to do this, this color match. <laughs> you were sending us pictures and stuff. And we were just like, try this one. What about this one? Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. But at least we have, uh, you know, some language now, right? Like it, what's what's been fascinating, again, from an anthropological perspective, is how now this... Um, scale that Fenty Beauty has given us has given us now like language to be like, oh, like if you're not in the 300s, are you even black? Um, or like, you know, oh, no, no, no. I'm not talking about, you know, you're black, whatever, 350. I'm talking about I'm in the 400s. That's that's my experience. And that can be it can be a very empowering thing. Um, but what's interesting about race, one of the many things that's interesting is this idea that features go together mm -hmm. and the thing is there are very very light-skinned people or relatively light-skinned people who have tighter curls than any dark-skinned person khoisan people in south africa indigenous people of south africa have the tightest curls that i have ever seen i've seen their hair samples they win hands down but they're relatively light-skinned but even if you're talking about like mixed people like there are some people because of how the genetics of this trait works who are really really light-skinned have freckles have really, really tightly curled hair, but also vice versa. People who are dark skin have relatively loose curls. However, because of this, I guess, higher, the process with which we racialize people, there's something about skin color that has, I want to say some kind of primacy in, mm -hmm. in, in how we read someone where people will read you or people will read someone as dark skinned as having more tight curls than they actually do. Like, I want to do some experiments on this and actually like show people things. But I've seen this happen with me, for example, where um, white people who see me as black in places where there's only really white people, they think I'm a lot darker than I actually am. Mm. So it's this filter that goes through a stage of like, OK, well, these are the categories that exist in my head and you're over there. So like whether you all the way over there or, or slightly over there, this is the same to me. Um, and it, the same can happen like, you know, in, in any other direction. Right. Like when we're like, OK, you're sorry, you're like dark blonde, not light brunette. Um, it's literally the same. <laughs> but it's I feel like to you. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think this is something we were we were trying to get at this the way th this intersection between texturism and colorism you have you know someone like tatiana ali for example mm -hmm. who is a dark-skinned woman but has what well I, I don't know what you all will call it but jamaican caribbean people would say coolie hair yeah so she has you know very uh mm -hmm. sil silky texture loose curls kind of mm -hmm. hair mm -hmm. but people people will be like okay she's she's a dark-skinned woman but then they'll categorize her as being more more acceptable of a dark skin mm -hmm. black person because mm -hmm. of because of like her mm -hmm. hair texture and things mm -hmm. like that so there's we were trying i i think we were trying to get at this mm -hmm. in our what's the word section but yeah i don't know this is I mean, it's not quite my it's not quite my wheelhouse but there's something there's a way that all of these kinds of isms interact with each other the colorism the featureism and the texturism particularly in, in black communities mm -hmm. but Absolutely. And if you think about also things that are supposed to be empowering, uh, but uh, actually I don't think are. One thing that I see a lot is uh, on social media, black people showing various tribes 
in Africa out of context with long hair and being like, look, our hair is long, right? And blonde hair too. The blonde, blonde hair. hair. Look, we can be blonde too. And I'm like, I see where you're going with this, but I don't think it's actually empowering because why is it that that is such an achievement? Why is it that that's the pinnacle of humanity? There's actually a, a series of uh, letters in evolutionary anthropology that I always refer back to where a bunch of you know white people, literally medical doctors who love to do you know, let me not insult anybody. But anyway, there's a lot of armchair evolutionary theory where they basically said, like, what is special about humans is that humans grow long hair that needs to be cut. That That is what it means to be human. And somebody had to come in and be like, I think you're forgetting some humans. I think you're forgetting some humans who are very much human, but don't have the kind of hair that grows so long where like it, it needs to be cut because otherwise it would be unwieldy. Like it's it's really interesting. I think honestly, it's a it's a literacy issue. <laughs> um, no, me the educator, former educator, being like it's because schools are so bad now that people mm-hmm. don't understand actually like <clears throat> biology one hundred and one, which is that like genetic variation could only come from mm-hmm. people that have like from Africa, right? Like Africa was where life started, so mm-hmm. you can't just make a new. How do I explain this in a, the way that my science teacher explained it to me? But basically, she was saying that mm. the genes of the first human beings had to have the cap- capacity for whatever genetic variation that we see, right? And so if life started in Africa, mm. that's where that you have to have that genetic mm. variation there in some way. So it's not, it's not that being blonde as a European is something that's extraordinary. It's like the capacity for that was already in human genes, right? It just became more expressed in Europe in certain ways. It's basically how it was explained, but I think people really have a lot of um, internalized anti-blackness in the sense that they think they're doing something empowering and when they're actually doing what you said, which is like actually putting putting forth a Eurocentric view and being like, well, this is, it was African first. And it's like, but yeah you know like does that matter like does that does it matter does it help you and what's interesting also is there's like a certain branch of pan-africanism or brand of pan-africanism that's happening there where it's like and what's interesting is i see this in black americans especially where you know looking back on the continent of africa because it has been presented as such as a place it's like no 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 you aren't like, you know, as closely related to everybody there. Uh, And there's like a lot of reasons why people aren't able to make those links, right? But this homogenization of Africa as one place, and it even still happens, especially in genetics, right? Even when we talk about like, there's the most genetic diversity in Africa, um, we're we're not really taught what that means because some traits, so for example, the blonde hair, we don't have those specific um, genetic variants in known African populations, like that only occurs in Melanesians who are just as non-African as East Asians, as Europeans. Uh, But at the same time, there's a lot of African populations where you have albinism and albinism is a form of blondism. (laughs) Like it it is because it's like the loss of pigmentation. Mm -hmm. And so Blonde hair has been elevated in some places is like, you know, kind of like what you're saying, this super special thing where, you know, it it's not really that complex. It's just like the loss of function. It's a loss of function 
mutation as is blue eyes it's like you can't make yes oh i remember anymore. your tiktok about that yeah yeah it's like it's like what, what power what pa- i don't know I don't know if I'm gonna sound like I'm a black nationalist. <laughs> but like, Bring in know, the hotepery. You know, my whole the hotepterist in me is mm-hmm. like, do you? And I had to like have conversations with black people about this, especially people who are like, you know, hate my hair, hate my skin. And it's like, do you understand that white people had to make themselves beautiful? And I think most people. That doesn't like when we talk about beauty standards, we kind of naturalize it, but that's literally the process of white people mm-hmm. making themselves beautiful. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they looked around and said, damn, we don't look like none of y'all. Mm-hmm. And we got to figure out how to oppress y'all some way. So we and don't make also, ourselves superior. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and at the same time, making certain things mm-hmm. unnatural or mm-hmm. ugly. Yep. I, uh, and and this brings me to to one of the things that I wanted us to talk about today, which I, <laughs> I said to the group chat way back in February, mm-hmm. people article, and the headline was toddler diagnosed with rare uncombable hair syndrome. And I was like, this feels racist. <laughs> and so according to Helpline, it's a condition that's characterized by dry, frizzy hair that cannot be combed flat. And so in one of your articles that we read, Today, you address woolly hair syndrome, mm-hmm. which is, and I'm taking this straight out of the International mm-hmm. Journal of Trichology, um, <laughs> which sounds great. Uh, trichology is no. not about turning tricks. It's about hair. And so woolly hair syndrome is a, quote, rare congenital abnormality of the structure of the scalp hair characterized by tightly coiled hair invo- um, involving part or the entire scalp occurring in an individual of non-Negroid origin, end quote. Y'all. So my question is like, how can we parse useful categorization of human variation and scientific racism? Because that article, mind y'all, that article I think was from 2018 that I took this quote from. Yes. I am spiritually exhausted because look, we did an episode. We did an episode on the PBS show that I'm on. And I was like, hair, I got you. And I am gonna get my little soapbox and talk about woolly hair syndrome and how it's BS. And somebody in the comments, and they wouldn't let me clap back, so it's my opportunity. Somebody <laughs> in the comments had the audacity to Caucasity? Mm-hmm, exactly to <laughs> say that I was deliberately misrepresenting woolly hair syndrome, that uh, the article I was referring to was talking about how woolly hair uh, was associated with some kind of neurological condition. Now, as you saw in that definition, the definition of the condition is by the hair, by the fact that a type of hair is present that is not appropriate for your race. That is the definition of the condition. They have tried for decades to link it to something else because the idea is well surely there's got to be something wrong with you if you have this negroid hair like oh my god like (laughs) like there's got to be something with your brain like maybe you have something and that's not to say that some of the people who show up with quote-unquote woolly hair don't have some kind of other condition but as do people with other types of hair. So I'm like, why are you literally distracting from helping this person with a thing that is actually maybe a health problem, focusing on something that is an aesthetic issue because you think it's inappropriate for that person's race. And when you pair that 
with the fetishization of silky hair among black people. I remember reading in this article um, where there were these kids who were diagnosed with some kind of malnutrition where their hair was silky. And so there was this like incredibly positive tone that was taken where it was like, oh, these kids are suffering from, you know, X, Y, Z, but they have silky hair. And these were Nigerian nurses and Nigerian researchers. So like the level of internalization there where you see something where the primary presentation is there is malnutrition. This person is sick, but then they display this trait that you associate with health and beauty, health, health, wealth and beauty. Exactly. And, you know, and then just the way that that contrasts with uh, woolly hair syndrome and uncombable hair, hair syndrome um, is very interesting to me. And what what is like, I mean, really what we need to explore here is medicine. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> but just that loophole, think about it, right? It's like we're saying this is a pathology because it is being presented in the wrong race. Mm hmm. So it seems like it's one of those cases where people are seeing potentially a symptom and wanting to treat the symptom rather than actually treating the disease. But it's actually, it's, it's naming it a disease. Naming it a symptom even. No, no, right? but, you, but you're saying there's possibly, some, there's possibly some other kind of, con- there's possibly some underlying condition that's not being addressed that, that might need to be helped in this person. And it might be being not even necessarily. in this way not even necessarily right there are some cases so like uh, a lot of the medical scientific literature is case uh case studies case reports where doctors will be like oh this is what we saw and in one individual there can be so many things going on like you don't know like what, what what's like uh relevant but a lot of people people who get diagnosed with woolly hair syndrome like it's the hair that comes in so like one of the uh they'll go to a dermatologist and that let me not say that in some cases uh, especially the European cases that I've seen. So, like, there's one Italian case that I remember where, literally, this girl, it wasn't, it wasn't even kinky, it wasn't even coily, bro. It was just like curly white people hair. Like, I was like, <laughs> and they said that was woolly hair syndrome. And, and somebody pointed out to me, oh, um, Yamar, Yamar is oh, amazing. Yamar. Oh my god, please have her on at some point. Like, her research is incredible. Uh, you know studying dermatologists like how are they seeing the world how are they diagnosing people and what she pointed out is that the the fact that i see kids in these case reports is telling me that it was the parent that saw the child's hair and said this is wrong mm. and that i was like damn damn like you know the parent said there's something wrong with this child brings them to a doctor and is like probably like, you know, my hair isn't like this, or maybe their hair is in some cases. Why is my child like this? And so that in and of itself is like a whole interesting right. situation. And there's other cases where um, a lot of medical reports are cases where individuals come from um, consanguineous marriages. So like the inappropriate way to say that is like, you know, inbred families, but very close relatives having uh, kids there can be a lot of things that happen in that case, but sometimes one of the traits that, you know, changes is hair. And so there have been cases where people have traced families and been like, oh, like we see woolly hair here. And 
there could be any number of things that's going on, but that's the thing that we're looking at. Like so many traits can be affected, but it's what we choose to look at and what we choose to label as pathological. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, I mean, and the connection to blackness is something that is like blackness is pathological, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you pathologize blackness, anything that approaches that then becomes disease, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. Yep. and brings you like in closer proximity to death. Um, that is where, that is just where, where the world is. And one day it won't be there no more. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just, mm. I'm like, damn, this is exhausting. It truly, it. it truly is. It truly is. Uh huh. And even uncombable hair syndrome to me is like very interesting because it's it's dis- distinct, made distinct, because the way they define it is um, it's always like silvery hair that um, like sticks out and it has like a, a, a an interesting cross section that I've seen in normal hairs as well. But they're trying to figure out what it is. But this is kind of where you see what it means to be human is to be in community and to be compared to others in your community. And so, you know, putting aside the global context of anti-blackness, uncombable hair syndrome, I have seen like, de- like described only in um, white people, really, like in, in white Europeans, a lot of English cases I've seen, you know, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, there might be some East Asian cases, but if you think about what they're talking about, there's like uncombable, like why is combing so important to you? Like, I think I, in my article, I wrote like, you know, why won't we have unbraidable hair syndrome? I know plenty of people where you can't hold a braid, like it's, it, it, <laughs> they try on TikTok, but I'm like, why are your edges dead? your hair can't hold a braid, but we don't consider that a syndrome. But the fact that it's uncombable is because you now can't adhere to the standard of your group, whatever it means to do that. And so part of me also wonders like, what would that have looked like in cases where humans were doing all kinds of things to their hair? Like, I think it's pretty recent in European history that people have just been like, okay, we're just gonna like leave it and do nothing. Like doing nothing to your hair is like, I don't know, a waste of human talent. If you think about it, just historically, you know, humans have always done stuff with their hair. Um, mm-hmm. it, like it's it's a, a medium that we use to express ourselves. And so, if you look at recent history, it, that's also where I think a lot of this toxicity is, right? Like this idea that you need to wake up in the morning, um, you know, get out of the shower and have your hair fall in a particular way is also very odd for humans because if you look throughout so many cultures throughout their histories they have these intricate hairstyles the fact that we have to be in community spend hours to do each other's hair like that is a testament to being human like it says i have somebody who is on my head for 14 hours three days three nights to get my hair done like to me that is much more interesting of a human story than this weird eugenic concept of which one of us was born correctly. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. I love that. I love that. It took uh, 40 hours to install my locks. I remember mm-hmm. we were, we were texting. <laughs> yeah, we were texting and I was like, wow, still there. You're like, oh, it's supposed to be done. I think it was supposed to be done in, in a day or something. And you're like, no, nope, it's still here. <laughs> Oh, she told me that because of the density of my hair and the length of my hair, because I didn't 
have no real conception of how long my hair was. I told her it yep. was like eight inches and she was, she measured it. And in some places on my head, my hair was like 16 inches long, it was like Ooh. 14, 16 inches long. So she was like, it's going to take at least three days. I think it was four days, uh, 40 hours. And we just stayed up all mm-hmm. night and she would go home, come back the next afternoon. And we would just thug it out. Me, my loctician and hoarders, we were what? We were there. But you're really a testament to humanity because think about it. I have this, like, my little conspiracy theory hypothesis is that humans evolved dexterity so that we could braid and lock our hair. Prove me wrong. Who has the strongest hands that you know? I like, I always tell people, I'm like, I might be weak in my upper body, but my thumb. If I grip you, if I pinch your cheeks, it's over. And it's because of all the stuff that I've been doing with my hair. I'm convinced. I'm like, the dexterity with that you need to braid hair. To me, that is, I'm like, mm-hmm. peak human, okay? Mm-hmm. Show, show me something else that can hold something like that small and do such intricate movements with their fingers. I'm like, and people haven't studied this because there's not enough black women in evolutionary anthropology. Because otherwise, why would I be the, why, why is my ass, this clown, the first one to do this? It's not because like, you know, I am able to comprehend things that no one else can. It's because I'm the only one in these spaces. And so many of us are pushed out of them. Like, and I have gone on my little rant about this. uh, I'm the first black woman to finish a PhD uh, in anthropology at Penn State. I'm not the first black woman to start. Hmm. This is me Listen, hanging my head. Let that, let that sink in, y'all. Will I finish? Oof, let that sink uh, in. Mm. Let that sink in. <laughs> let's, okay, let's just switch gears a little bit because just so everyone knows, this, most of our conversation is based on stuff we've already talked about in our group chat. So, <laughs> <laughs> there's a group chat, y'all. You can be jealous. I have exclusive access, okay? <laughs> they love me. <laughs> So a while back, I sent, um, I sent it was, a, I think it was a tweet because Edmonton police had mm. tweeted this photo of a pretty generic looking black male. And they were like, this was developed from DNA phenotyping. Essentially, they used DNA from a crime scene to determine what their characteristics, their physical um, characteristics were in order to create the image of their suspect. So this sounds problematic, dangerous as hell. Is this for real? Is Can you really get my DNA and figure out what I look like? Is it pseudoscience? What are the risks? Let me, let me get adjusted in my, let me get adjusted in my chair. Um, <laughs> we should be scared that people use fraudulent science fiction. Yes. Um, there's DNA phenotyping and then there's Parabon Labs. And I'm pretty sure that <laughs> this is the company that created that uh, DNA phenotype mugshot because they're usually behind all of this BS. Um, I don't care. I'm start a fight. Um, everyone that I know in genetics and academia it, it is like, the <laughs> what are y'all doing? Like, this is not at all how it works. Like, this is there's like huge issues with what they do. And I'm going to try and and break it down. So there is this idea that you can predict someone's traits from their DNA. So if we're able to study all kinds of traits and genetic variations and understand what genes influence what traits, 
it stands to reason that, okay, but if we know what genes someone has, can we know what traits they have? Mm-hmm. Now, the issue is that predicting things is difficult. And predicting something as complex as the face is extra difficult. What ends up happening is that for people of European ancestry, because they are so well studied genetically, it's slightly more useful, slightly more individuating because we know we have so much data that we're able to uh, talk about different hair color and eye color maybe. Now for non-Europeans, because there's so little data and because the kinds of variation are different, what ends up having uh, happening is that you have like a racial profile. That's it. That is all that you get. Um, a black man between a, five seven and six two. But we did it with, <laughs> with but, but we did it with three D art this time. Okay, so it's special. Okay, special. And this is this is really important for us to understand. Like I'm going more into facial recognition and AI now because whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. our faces are on the internet. I. use apple products some of you may or may not as well like even in other uh technologies like that facial recognition that opens your phone whether you're talking about uh going through customs and them looking at those things like that information whether you like it or not is out there and the people who are processing that information don't understand human variation and so what they do is they do these analyses and create these um algorithms that are biased in particular ways, surprise, a disadvantage, non-Europeans. So when it comes to DNA phenotyping, when you try to predict a face, what you end up doing is giving what is called a consensus face, a consensus ancestry face. So Mm -hmm. if you think about it this way, Mm -hmm. um, if we look most similar to our siblings, we kind of look like our parents and so on and so forth. What you're seeing is the more closely related you are to someone, the more similar you look. And that's because in a trait as complex as the face, there's so many genes that are involved with it that in some ways they parallel how genetically similar you are to someone. Now, if we think about genetic similarity and ancestry, who are you most genetically similar to? Well, people you share a lot of ancestors with. And that um, has correlations with race. So what ends up happening is you do all of uh, these associations and these analyses, and you can create what is called a consensus face. So you can be like, okay, if we look on this axis that describes the difference between someone who is of this ancestry and this ancestry, most people who are of this ancestry, this is the average face. This is the average face for that ancestry. And we can do the same with sex. Like we, we think this is like, you know, the set, like the, the average face for this sex, the average face for that. Sex. No one has that face. Not a single person has that face. <laughs> so what you end up doing is you are, um, you have, and I read this somewhere. Um, Charik uh, did some great work on DNA uh, phenotyping and forensics. You don't have a suspect individual. You have a suspect population. You have a suspect race mm-hmm. is what ends up happening. So now you've put this image out there that people can't ever, you will never, you especially when we don't have the data that we do like we do in Europeans, it's not going to look anything like 
the person. You see some of the things on their website, that that um, company's website. And it's a private company and they don't share their algorithm. So none of us can figure out what the hell it is that they're actually doing. Mm, Fraud. And when you you look at, they're like, oh, look at these are cases that we helped solve. This is the person they found. And this is the image that we um, generated. In some cases, I'm like, I guess if I squint, this white person kind of looks like that picture that you sent. But then for people who are not European, this is a a generic Asian man. This you made a generic East Asian man and you're trying to. We yeah, we should be scared because the way that law enforcement takes takes this stuff up, that's that's one of the biggest issues here. Um, things that are masquerading as science are weaponized to do what law enforcement wants to do anyway. A lot of the times, sometimes they don't have a, a suspect whatsoever, but sometimes they know who they're looking for and they're looking for evidence confirming mm. that. And that can help that happen. And, you know, even if no intentions are present, it can lead people in the wrong direction. And again, you know, criminalizing an entire population is is dangerous. So, yeah, that's my little soapbox. I'm going to stop now. And we know, and we know that those technologies are going they get weaponized against black people the most. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we do. We should be how one thing that we also that we did also talk about and because personally i've done ancestry dna mm-hmm. so i want to know where do they get these dna samples should i be worried that the government yeah has my dna <laughs> can they get it <laughs> you know should i can i can i feel safe getting genetic testing for diseases you know can i feel safe participating in clinical research yep yep these are such important questions and if i if i ever get around to doing all the work i plan to do during my postdoc one of the things that i am working (laughs) on with my advisor is um these forensic forensic genetic genealogy so some of you may have heard of the golden state killer case and how that uh Mm -hmm. person who was actually a former police officer i found out shocker anyway Mm -hmm. not neither here nor there um was found through a like second, third cousin. Now, a lot of the concerns that popped up about genetic privacy is it's one thing to consent yourself to be in a genetic database. Let's say, you know, that you, Alyssa, are like, okay, you know, I know the risks, I agree to be there. From the perspective of genetic genealogy, you have just consented all your immediate relatives and all of your cousins up to probably your 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 second cousins. Mm. Like your DNA is not your own it is shared and so that is one of the incredibly powerful things about dna that uh we are starting to like we knew but its implications weren't clear until just now and so if law enforcement actually had access to 23andme and ancestry.com it would be over like they could find everyone in the us because that is how especially like you know european americans that's it. You can find all of them. You have this unknown sample. You will find a relative in those databases. And we're doing, working on some simulations and some calculations to see how that applies to uh, Black people. But the thing is, uh, there's other databases. There's this um, database called CODIS, um, which is, I want to say, combined database uh, index for people whose DNA has been taken either during an arrest or because they're incarcerated and they're already in a database. It's different 
genetic markers that they look at, but black people are overrepresented in that database. Mm -hmm. And so if we have this database where it, their consent is not involved, like if you are by law forced to give up a DNA sample, like you, there's, there's no choice there. So I'm saying all of this to say that there is no way to protect yourself individually. There is no way for us to protect ourselves individually. And that's something that a lot of um, black and indigenous genomicists and geneticists are trying to like drive home. It's like we share DNA. So like for us as individuals to say no and for anyone to go behind our backs and find someone in our community exposes all of us. And so that's why it's so critical for us to be involved in this research to push forward uh, agendas and laws that say, even if this data exists, you can't use it in such a way. That is the only thing that we can do now to keep ourselves safe because that information is already going to be out there. We need to make sure that the knowledge is around so people know how it can be used and abused and that the laws are there to give us a tool to maybe try and protect ourselves with. Mm. So you good, Alyssa, you fine. I'm in a database too. But regardless, <laughs> we're, you, you, you and me are foreign. Like I like you and me are like they know everything. We give up our our, our social media handles when we come into this. Our country. social media, no, I, I I don't remember giving my social media handles. But yes, I all of the biometric data, of course, you know, having your fingerprint scanned and um and all of those things. Um, I have a friend who's a lawyer and she works a lot on privacy and mm. um, intellectual property and stuff like that. And while well, she was doing one, now she does the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said that you know one of the things that she always refused giving up was biometric data but now that she's living abroad she had to have her yep. fingerprint scanned and those are things that can really contribute to you being identified um my worries like couldn't they use this data to frame me or some shit but that's listen, a lot of people's worries. the reason the reason that i asked that question is because <laughs> i don't want to discourage people from yeah. getting tested for genetic diseases or i don't want to discourage people from participating in clinical research because we need to participate in these yes in in these projects so that um we are represented when it comes to vaccines when it comes to any medical developments all, any mm -hmm. exactly any kind of medical uh mm -hmm. development or device like we need to be represented in these so that we know that it's it's safe for populations like us for people who you know, are similar to us in terms of human variation. I'm trying to use your language. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you're getting it absolutely right. Um, so yeah, right. I don't, I, th that's why I asked that question is because I don't mm -hmm. want people to hear this and be like, oh my God, I'm never giving anyone any of my, anything that would lead to a DNA sample. Yeah, exactly. So the thing is, um, the best thing we can do to protect ourselves is to be in positions of power when it comes to this research to negotiate these positions of power to broker for power because we can't successfully like extract ourselves from these societies that's just at the end of the day that's the issue if we could somehow like completely separate ourselves be on another planet maybe there'd be like you know some hope but because we can't do that that information is going to be used on us regardless of whether we participated or not so whether it's about facial recognition technologies whether it's about genetic information and medical data whether you did or didn't participate whoever they did however small that sample is 
That is the information that is going to be used to develop medical treatments that are going to be offered to you because that's what they had. And they're like, well, the closest thing we have is, is what we're giving you here. And so that's why I'm so passionate about like, you know, science communication and involving people in this process and not doing any of this, you know, STEM only BS or get people like in STEM when they're like three years old, like whatever. I got into STEM when I was like, whatever, 23, 22, whatever, whenever I started doing this research and the way that information is just not being spread to people who need this information to make decisions is terrifying to me because like this power, it's power that people are, you know, withholding from us and we have to keep our community safe by keeping them informed. And if we inform enough people, there's going to be lawyers among us. There's going to be activists who are like, okay, so you said that. Okay. I understand that. Can we do this? And it might be something I've never thought of. And then we can maybe protect yourself in a particular way or do something else. Like it's so, uh, like, you know, crucial to have these conversations to generate new ideas. Wonderful. We're coming up on two hours of recording, not with you, but oh my God. for total recording. All right. Let's ask on a lighter note, let's ask the question that everybody wants the answer to every, every black person who has hair. Do I really need specially formulated quadruple the price hair products for my negroid type hair i'm scream um (laughs) (laughs) so this is where i'm gonna be give like an annoying uh, a scholarly answer um if you wish to cleanse your hair there is nothing that you need that isn't you know right you could use soap It could cleanse your hair. However, many of us do not wish to just cleanse our hair. We have all these desires from it. We want it to hydrate the hair. We want it to make the curls pop. We want the curls to be clumping in a particular way. Now, it's the desire for a product to do particular things that decides the extent to which you might want to use one thing over the other. If products are being developed for people with super thin stick straight hair that has like massive porosity and all they want is for each individual strand to separate. If you do that and then your curls aren't clumping, you're not going to be happy. So there are people who spend years, you know, including a lot of black women developing products and testing it, you know, with black women, uh, for black women to see if it's doing what they want it to do. In which case, like, you know, you have that trial that has occurred and people who have said, okay, I tried to make it do this thing. This is what I've gotten after years of trying it to, to do this thing, trying to get it to do this thing and it will be more expensive. So if anybody really wants to know more about like cosmetology and this side of the research, there is a sister scientist, Erica Douglas, love her. She is on Instagram, a chemical engineer by training and has spent her entire career developing hair products like, you know, with black women, for black women, amazing stuff. And there's a lot of money that goes into that research. So, um, it is more expensive. Uh, I would never say that you need anything because 
you don't. But depending on what results you want to achieve, you may or may not want to skip the DIY experimentation on yourself and go with something <laughs> where somebody has already experimented and said, hey, this should do what you want it to do. Because you could always try and reformulate it yourself, but it's kind of like the debacle that I have every time where it's like, oh, I could buy this ready meal or I could cook. And what happens is every time I try to cook, I end up with a fridge full of ingredients that are rotting and I put them together and taste nothing like the thing that I wanted in the end. So I go with pre-made. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Tina. This was thank you incredible. <laughs> thank you for having so, me. So much, so much wonderful information. Um, and different and different from many of our episodes because we don't have stem scientists <laughs> you're our first uh stem stem person which we should have a whole conversation about that because coming to the u.s like stem was not a thing where i came from i was like what is what is stem why would you put all these weird disparate subjects together that don't even make sense and then they've yeah. got steam i don't know I Bruh, don't know they'd be trying that, but... the, it's the branding for me it's the marketing the marketing is strong <laughs> All right. Tell everyone where they can find you because I know that they're going to want to if they don't already follow you. Boom. Um, I am Tina Lasisi on everything. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, um, and, you know, at some point, maybe even LinkedIn. Let me get on this most toxic platform of all. Um, I'm also <laughs> on YouTube. Uh, if you want to see the PBS uh, show that I'm on, it's on PBS Terra. If you just search, why am I like this with Dr. Tina Lasisi, you will find our episodes. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much all the places you can find me. Oh, and starting next fall, you can find me in Ann Arbor because I will be at the University of Michigan. With her own lab. So if any oh, of the lab. research ideas that we just fed to you sound interesting, you might be able to do them in mm -hmm. the Lasisi lab. Exactly. <laughs> oh. We're so excited for you. I was going to say, yes, we're very much excited. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's all we have for you today thank you all for listening this episode was produced by Alyssa james and brendan tynes and distributed in partnership with the american anthropological association this season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the arts and science graduate council the Heyman center public humanities graduate fellowship and donations from listeners just like you Thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, or even on that broke telephone you got, that little Nokia that you got in your drawer. Use, use the Nokia instead of the facial recognition iPhone. <laughs> hmm. We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron to, exclusive, to access exclusive content, visit our website, ZorisDaughters.com. Last but not least, remember to be kind to yourselves. Bye. 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 Period. <laughs> oh, my hey. God. Guys, I don't want to be that valley girl, but oh, my God. I love you guys so much. I love you guys so much. Like my face hurts from smiling so much. I'm such a stan, you don't understand. I.